Well, good morning again. It is just gorgeous outside, isn't it? Just invigorates me just walking outside. Somebody asked me um, when I was preparing a sermon, they said, what do you do to prepare for a sermon? And I said, well, I read the word, of course. But my, the key for me in this passage, I do, if you've never heard of this, maybe I, I know a lot of you have, but homiletics is just wonderful. And three points that I'm going to make this morning come straight out of doing homiletics on Scripture. Let's talk about the Corinthians. As a, I want to kind of go back and put this in context a little bit. The Corinthians. I don't think anybody wakes up and says, you know, I'd really like to be like the Corinthians. Do they? You know, well, let's, let's look at... Corinth, first of all. I'm going to give you some background because it leads up to what we're going to be talking about. Corinth, you know, was located on an airstrip connecting two seas. Okay, it had a controlling access to those two seas. They would take goods from one and cart them to the, the next to shorten their routes. Sometimes they would actually roll boats over logs to get to the sea. Uh, Corinth had many temples and shrines, it had, including one temple to Apollo, uh, one to Poseidon, had two theaters. One of those theaters sit, uh, seated over 18,000 people. That's a lot of people in one place. It was a very wealthy area. And wealth, wealth has a certain connotation to it. Years ago, I sat down with uh, Randy Pope, who is the pastor of Perimeter Presbyterian Church. This is years ago. And they had not built their present building where they were, are right now. And we were asking about church planning, how they did it. They had planted several churches. And we said, you know, you're moving into an area that's very wealthy. So you should be able to raise the money for your church building. He said, yeah, possibly so. He said, but guys, with wealth comes a whole set of problems that a lot of people don't deal with. Of course, everybody's saying, well, I wish I had those problems. But he said, no, that, there's a mindset that comes with people who have a lot of money. He says, so it's not all roses. And I agree with that. You know, why do we ask, tell me, why do we ask movie stars how to raise our children? Huh? Just because they have a lot of money? Or multimillionaires that own these corporations, how we should conduct our everyday life? Just because they have a lot of money? We, we do that because we think they have influence and we think they know things just because of their wealth, and they don't. Now, Corinth was a very immoral city. Uh, you've probably heard this term. It's been passed around, Corinthiazomia. It meant to live like a Corinthian in the practice of sexual immorality. They were very immoral. Paul probably came to Corinth around 50 A.D., and he ministered there for about a year and a half. Uh, the church was made up of Jews and Greeks, probably mostly Greeks. After leaving Corinth, and, and while in Ephesus, after Paul left, he heard about their troubles. Okay, 1 Corinthians is written to address those problems, and they had all kinds of problems. They had one, disorderly conduct in worship. Two, they had false views of the resurrection of Christ in the body. 
Three, incest, adultery, and other sexual immoralities. They were doing unchristian actions and taking fellow Christians to court. They were misusing Christian liberty. And they had disorder in the Lord's Supper. You know, Paul may have heard of other favorable, unfavorable reports, and he paid them another painful visit at some point. After receiving 1 Corinthians, the Corinthians may have corrected some of the things that Paul addressed. In other words, you see no more about in 2 Corinthians of the abuse of the Lord's Supper or the litigation among Christians. But in spite of that, the Corinthians were still deteriorating. If you're a grandparent, especially a grandparent, even a parent, my parents used to keep our kids once, one week out of the summer and take them fishing and all kinds of stuff. But when we went to pick them up, they had the suitcases ready for us to go. Because there's always one in the family, is there not, kids, that is a handful. There's always one. My parents, it took them two days to recuperate from, from the boys. But there's, the Corinthians were a handful. And that's what Paul is addressing they were basically a handful all the way around. They were, what they were doing, they were letting the culture seep into the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says this. He's addressing one of those issues. He says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Paulus, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The Corinthians had lost their focus, and they were letting the world flood into the church, their philosophy, their thinking. I'm reading a book, and it's called, uh, the title is After Paul Left Corinth, The Influence of Secular Ethics and Social Change by Bruce Winters. Sounds like a real nail-biter, doesn't it? It is very good. But it talks about the social standing and the social atmosphere of Corinth during that time. Teachers in first, here's what he mentions. Teachers in the first century competed amongst themselves, okay, for pupils. A teacher's ability to debate and speak eloquently gained him followers. Okay, and more importantly, gained him paying students. And these students would then turn around and claim association with their teachers by saying, well, I follow Joe, I follow Joel, I follow Pete, whatever. They would associate that with themselves. It gave them status. It gave them power in, in that atmosphere. But they were letting the culture, just like the Corinthian church, let the culture seep into the church by saying, I follow Paulus or Paul. Many of the Corinthian believers were not living according to who they were in Christ. Again, in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells them this, chapter 6. In Christ, they have been transformed and they have left their unclean past behind, but they had quickly forgotten after Paul left. Now, in 2 Corinthians, which we're going to be looking at, in 5.17, Paul reminds them again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 
He is a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This was a reminder of who they were in Christ. We are new creatures. We don't follow the way of the world or the culture. So let's look at the scripture. Let's pray first. Oh, gracious Father, we pray for help as we open your word this morning. And to each one who is listening, that we would bow to the authority of it and through your grace, Father, would we respond to its truth. To that end, Father, we seek your help. In Christ's name, amen. So look with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 14. I want to make three points this morning that Paul wants to continue to remind them and us of what's going on. The first one is the Christian life involves separation. It does. Or basically recognizing opposites. Let's look at what Paul told them at first. One, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And we love to use this verse for Christians marrying non-Christians. That shouldn't happen. But MacArthur says also a Christian and a non-Christian shouldn't join together in a spiritual endeavor. Why would that be? Because they have different outlooks, different directions in which they're heading. Two, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Three, what fellowship is light with darkness? Such a contrast. What accord or what agreement does Christ have with Belial? A name used for Satan. Completely opposites. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever. And the last, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Here a physical building, what the, a physical temple, what does it have anything to do with idols if it's the Lord's? Paul uses these examples, things that are opposite of what God is, saying we need to separate ourselves from them. Let's look at 16b. Why? Why separate? And it tells us here. For we are the temple of the living God. The temple of the living God. We belong to Him. It's pretty simple. His Holy Spirit lives within us. You know, Paul used this, this metaphor of the, of the temple numerous times in other passages. In 1 Corinthians 3.9, he said this, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? And then again in 1 Corinthians 6.19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God. When I was in college, I loved this phrase, temple of God. I thought it was just a neat phrase. So I had a sweatshirt made up. Remember Temple University has a logo that goes across like this? So I had, a, I had temple put across here and I had 
So you can see, I had temple maintenance. Temple maintenance, temple of God, workout, what, running, get it? Yeah, okay. Well, I, thought, I just thought it was cool. It was a great conversation starter. The only problem was I was so dadgum skinny, like the Burkholders, that maintenance started over here and it came all the way around here, so I had to go like this for to people to see it. But it, again, it was a great conversation piece, and I love the, the concept of being the temple of God. First, but I had, I had the wrong view of the temple of God. I thought it was about me. My emphasis was wrong. First, it is true that we all have this, the Holy Spirit individually, but we are not all individually the temple of God. Let me give you an example. In 1 Peter 2, Peter's illustration says that we are living stones, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Okay? We are all individually being built into that spiritual house of which Christ is the cornerstone. But we are not individually the totality of it. Okay? Let me give you another example, maybe a little plainer. Paul calls us the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But no one would say that we are individually the body of Christ. Instead, we are in all individually members of it. Does that make sense? We are all part of this spiritual body of Christ. But none of us are complete in it by ourselves. And that's where I was thinking wrongly. It was not about me. It's never about us. But instead, I should have been thinking about the body of Christ, my church family. And so should the Corinthians. And they weren't doing that. In both cases, in 1 Corinthians uh, 3.9 and 3.16, the wording of you is a second plural. Okay, and I'll, let me explain that, second plural. I hate it when people give me all these English pronouns. I never get it, but I do get this. Instead of saying you are, the phrasing actually should be you all are God's field, God's building. You all are the temple of God. Unfortunately, English doesn't have a, a different form for you in the singular and the plural. Unless, of course, if you've heard, you got the Southern ESV and it says y'all, doesn't it? Yeah. So it says y'all. That would be the pro proper pronunciation. What I believe Paul is trying to say here is this. He's trying to emphasize and keep reminding the Corinthians is that none of us are complete temples of God without the others. Our church family. We're not. We are not standalone Christians. We're in this together. I think Paul is also saying because we are the temples of God, we are to be separate from the things of the world worldly thinking, worldly objects. Separate yourself from darkness, as he said. We are to see things in a different light as the body of Christ. 
And we'll talk about this a little bit more later on. Why should we be separate from the world or the things that are in opposition to the Lord? Well, that's pretty simple, isn't it? We belong to Him. His temple. If you think about it, He is separate from darkness. And so should we. We should be separate. All right, let's read verses 16b, starting at 16b. Paul says this. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be what? Be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. My second point is basically this. God promises to walk with his sons and daughters as they live separate from uncleanliness. We need to be reminded of our past. It's always good to to remember the things that have happened in the past, to reflect on that. And Paul here is reminding them by going back to the Old Testament of what God promised in the Old Testament. And what he does in these couple of verses is that he combines uh, several Old Testament scriptures. One commentator said he probably was reciting from memory to prove his point, but he combines several verses. One of those verses is Leviticus 26.12, and it says this, I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Before God makes that statement, though, he lays out some conditions. He says, okay, don't don't make idols for yourselves, in verse 1. He says, do not set up a figure stone in your land to bow down to. And after setting those conditions, he says this. He says, I will give peace in the land if you do these things. You shall chase your enemies and they shall fall before you. He also uses Exodus 29, 45. He, he says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. This statement was also made after laying out some guidelines for the priest to follow concerning the ram and the blood and the holy garments. Then he says this, he says, Thus you shall say, do to Aaron and his sons, according to all that I have commanded you. Basically, the Lord is saying to, guys, if you do these things, follow my commands, and after you do, there are blessings that come with this. When he says, I will dwell with the people. There are blessings in following God's commands. There just are. Verse 17 says this, Therefore go out from their midst and be separate, again, separate from them. That verse actually uh, comes from Isaiah, <clears throat> excuse me, 52.11. Now, in Isaiah 52.11, it's really referring to the separation or departure from Babylon. But as one commentator said, what Paul is saying here in them 
in using the word them is a call to separate from unbelievers or that uncleanliness. Israel was under the laws, no doubt about that, and they were, they were guidelines that had to be followed. But there was also blessings for obedience and following the commands and the statutes of the Lord. And there are blessings for doing, there are always blessings for doing what God says, always. But not only, this is the part I like, not only are there blessings resulting from obedience, but there's also the biggest blessing of all. Because we belong to him, because we are his temple, so to speak, we have a family relationship. We are sons and daughters with a heavenly father. Verse 18. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Again in Galatians 4.4. 4. Well, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And I guess a question I have to ask this morning, have you been adopted? Have you been adopted by Christ, by God? Romans eight fourteen through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry again, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. J.R. Parker once wrote, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. How true. So, by separating from the things of the world spiritually, we are drawn closer to our Lord, and naturally, the Lord is drawn closer to us as our Father, and we as his sons and daughters. That is a Wonderful, wonderful blessing to behold. Romans 12, 9 reminds us, Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. In other words, again, separate yourself from darkness. Now, as you all know, we cannot separate ourselves from this physical world. We can't until the Lord calls us home. We need to be salt in light, but in a spiritual sense, we must separate ourselves from the world's philosophy, especially today. We must think biblically, 
and we must head to the light and away from darkness. It's especially critical to think biblically in these times. Let's go on to verse 7-1. Now, in my opinion, and I think Justin agreed with me, verse 7-1 should have been included in chapter 6. It just fits better in chapter 6. I don't know who was doing the outline when he did this, but I think he messed up here. This seems to go great with verse 6. Paul says this, Since we have these promises, okay, what promises was that again? Because we are sons and daughters by new birth, God will draw us closer to us as we separate ourselves from things that are opposite of who He is. That is a natural occurrence when we do that, when we turn from the darkness to the light. And my third and final point will probably rest right here. Paul encourages cleansing for it brings holiness. And I'm glad Jeremy prayed about holiness in his prayer this morning because we're going to talk about that in a little bit more detail. Paul is encouraging cleansing. So what is that? That is sanctification. Here's a good definition. If you don't have a good definition for sanctification, sanctification is an internal condition or process in which we are changed into the image of Christ. Sanctification moves us closer and closer to holiness or Christ. Dr. Lloyd-Jones says of this process, he says, you know, guys, it begins the moment we are justified. You cannot be justified without this process of sanctification having already started, he says. It's the mo- it starts the moment we get a new heart. If we are in Christ, we have been changed. If you belong to him, you've been changed. And you will pursue holiness, even though, here's the catch, even though it will not be perfectly. Why is that? Because, frankly, it's, it's not easy. It's a hard process. Um, I grew up in Florida, and the town I lived in had numerous lakes and rivers and ponds, and I loved playing in them. But sometimes it was growing up so, so much around the lakes, you couldn't walk around them unless you got in the water along the edge and walked in the sand around the... But the problem with that was that it, was, it felt good, but it would, you would get stuck. The sand was so suction-oriented, it would just pull your foot right down, you'd have to pull out numerous times. And that's what sanctification does. Your foot gets stuck and you pull against it and pull it out and you make a little progress and then sometimes that process sucks you back down. Martin Luther says, there is nothing easier than sinning. There's nothing easier than sinning. And that's kind of what that suction does. That suction is sin and it just pulls you back down. You pull out, you're able to walk a little bit more, pulls you back down, but it's a struggle. It's a constant battle between our sin natures that we were born with and that new heart we were given at birth. Here's a point I want to make. We must understand that we have a sin nature. Okay? We're not just naturally good. Because of Adam's fall, 
uh, our 1689 confession says, puts it this way. By this sin, our first parents fell from their original righteousness and communion with God. We fell with them. And through this, death came upon all. All became dead in sin and completely defiled in all capabilities, parts of soul and body. In a shortened version of that is Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I love the way David, actually I love the way David puts it in Psalms 51. He says this about original sin or our nature of sin. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me from day one. Day one. I don't want to go down a rabbit hole of total depravity on this sermon, but I do want us to understand and be reminded of where we came from and where we stood before Christ because of Adam's fall. Again, the 1689 Confession says this, Their descendants... Adam and Eve, are now conceived in sin and are by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, and partakes of death and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. It's depressing, isn't it? But then it ends with this, unless the Lord Jesus sets them free. The Lord did not take away our sin nature, but he has given us the power over that sin, according to Hebrews 2. And the Holy Spirit, which the Lord gives us, John 14, 26, is our helper, which lives in our temples, is the one who helps cleanse us through the process of sanctification, See how all that works together? It's pretty sweet how all that just comes together. It's an amazing and wonderful thing of Scripture. Paul is encouraging the Corinthians and us that as we cleanse ourselves or as sanctification process takes root from darkness, it continues that process of bringing holiness to completion. But I do like this. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to Acts 26, 18. Paul's not original. He's just repeating what somebody else said. He's just repeating what Jesus told him. Here he is on, on the day of his conversion. Christ says this, I am sending you to open their eyes. That's what he's trying to do with the Corinthians. So that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. In other words, to be spiritually separate from the world. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Isn't that just what he said in Corinthians? He's just repeating what the Lord said can't think of anybody else I'd want to repeat any more than Christ. Paul told them earlier in 2 Corinthians 3.18, you are being transformed into the same image, one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 
How are they transformed? Through the process of sanctification. So, what is the goal of sanctification? Paul tells us again back in 2 Corinthians. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That's the goal, to bring holiness to completion. Have you ever thought about being holy? The holiness of God? You know, God's holiness is found throughout Scripture. Exodus 15, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Psalm 60, 16, God has spoken in his holiness. Psalms 93, your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness benefits your house, O Lord, forevermore. And then Isaiah 6, 3, we all know. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You know, in Leviticus 19.2, and it's also in Leviticus chapter 11, the Lord says this, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Have Have you ever thought about that statement in your own personal life? What? What does it mean to be holy? I mean, God's up here, and we're way down here. I think Butch mentioned this one time before, but the Hebrew word for holy is kadash, and it comes from a semantic root that means a cutting, basically. The idea is an object cut into two pieces, resulting in separation of two halves. In other words, it conveys the idea that God God is set apart from his fallen creation. He is so far above us, he is separate from his, the works of his hand. And Paul is basically saying the same thing in verses 14 through 16, that we should separate from the world in a spiritual sense, as God is separate from us. 1 Peter chapter 1, which covered this several weeks ago, But it has a section on a call to be holy. And it repeats Leviticus 19.2. You shall be holy, for I am holy. So how can we perfect holiness, as Paul states? How can we bring holiness to completion? Basically, how can we be holy? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever woken up in the morning and said, all right, I got this. Today I am going to be holy. I've got this down today. I, it's, I'm going to be holy. No, we probably wouldn't say that, would we? We might say instead, Lord, make me holy. Please make me holy. Or better yet, today I will seek the Lord. Charles Spurgeon says this, Being a Christian is more than an instantaneous conversion. It is a daily process whereby you grow to be more and more like Christ. And Butch has reminded us a 
few weeks ago again also that holiness is a fruit of the Spirit. The results of seeking the Lord is holiness. This process of sanctification, this day and day struggle to seek and nurture our relationship with the Lord is the process, as Paul says, that brings holiness to completion. Our struggle, our stuck in the mud, our fight to seek the Lord will bring the fruit of holiness in our lives. There's a phrase, and I have to apologize, I could not find where this came from. I had it in some notes. Um, So whoever gets credit for this, thank you. It's a wonderful phrase. And the phrase says this, we can only perfect holiness if we look to the one who sets the standard for holiness, God. Read that again. We can only perfect holiness if we look to the one who sets the standard for holiness, and that's God. That's Jesus. And one day the process will be done. One day when we stand before the Lord, that process will be complete, but it won't be done until until that moment. So we will struggle, but I encourage us to continue to seek the Lord. Last quote from Spurgeon. He had such a way with words. He said, holiness is not the way to Christ. Christ is the way to holiness. And I agree with that. Let us have the hearts of David. In uh, Psalms, David said this, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He was seeking the Lord. He wanted to be more like the Lord. And may we do that as well. Prayerfully we will. So in conclusion, that's, that's what the Lord gave me, so I'm not going to talk anymore. But let me say in this in conclusion, Paul is reminding us through the Corinthians that the Christian life involves three things. It involves separation. Not only recognizing the darkness, but turning from it and heading to light. And we, as a body of believers, can do this because the Holy Spirit lives within us, our temple. And when we do that, when we seek the light, Point two, because we have a family relationship with the Father, because we are adopted, sons and daughters, because of that, we will draw closer to God, and He will draw closer to us. It's just a wonderful promise that Paul is trying to remind us and the Corinthians. And lastly, the Christian life involves cleansing or sanctification. Why? Well, like the Corinthians, we can lose our focus. We can lose our direction. We need to constantly be reminded of who we are in Christ. We need that reminder because our ultimate goal is to be like Christ, is it not? Not to follow the world's standards, which in this day and time are crowding more and more around us everywhere. 
but to follow the one who sets the standard for all of life. And I pray that we will continue to do that, to seek the one who saves and seek the one who sets those standards. Let's pray. Father, we are so much like the Corinthians in so many ways. Forgive us. Sanctify us. Help us in our struggles not to lose focus on the one who has given us new life, eternal life. God, thank you for Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen.